Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman, and with me, as always, is Prashant Iyer, uh, who is in Carolina, who can tell us uh, how Carolina is reacting to the fact that they lost to the Red Wings last night, uh, 4-2, to two, a little bit of an upset by the Red Wings against one of the NHL's, not a little bit, a very much of an upset last night by the Red Wings against one of the NHL's very best teams. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean... My Twitter feed tends to be a solid mix of Wings and, and Canes fans just because I like to monitor the pulse. And very surprisingly, there there is no overreaction that I came across. They're like, oh, well, it happens. And, you know, uh, I guess I guess we'll just move along from this one, which, again, is good because Carolina is an extraordinarily good hockey team and really didn't play one of their best games last night. But I think you have to give a large part of that credit to the Red Wings. They uh, they came out. They kind of exerted their system on the Hurricanes. They didn't really allow the Canes to have a lot of great end-to-end rushes, as you sort of saw in the first game where, you know, maybe it was Jonathan Bernie bailing you out on those odd man rushes. This time around, I thought Detroit did a much better job slowing Carolina through the neutral zone, making them work a little bit harder. And and ultimately, they they deserved to win, and they did win. They did. And, and, and certainly Jonathan Bernier is always a very big part of the story. Very good. Again, I think he made 35 saves on 37 shots, something right around that range. Um, you know, he comes up big again. But, you know, Adam Ernie, power play Adam Ernie, the unstoppable force of, of this game with, with his two first period power play goals. I got to say, I wouldn't have picked that. Um, but Adam Ernie's on a nice little run of play here recently. And even though I think a lot of it has come on that fourth checking line with Darren Hellman, Luke Lindenning. Um, the Red Wings are really happy with what he's doing in that bumper roll on that first power play. I don't know how long that lasts, but usually when, when Jeff Blaschel is as effusive as he was about Adam Ernie last night, um, it seems like Adam Ernie's going to get some opportunities to stick there. Yeah, I mean, just like you said, if you told me before the game that Adam Ernie was going to score two power play goals, I would have said absolutely not. Like, the, the, There's no way that's going to happen. And, and not only did he score two power play goals... That first one, which uh, was kind of a quick release in the slot, got a guy on his back one time or through the pass. Maybe that was the second one. That's I can't remember. One, yeah. yeah, that that's a goal scoring goal. Like that that's not a hey, you know, you managed to deflect the puck or puck hit you in the rear end and went in the net. That's like you you beat your guy to the spot in the slot, and then you were able to fire a one timer that goes through Reimer's legs. The granted, I think that was the goal where James Reimer just refused to pick up his stick. Uh, for some reason, and, and then ultimately didn't have his stick to be able to defend the five hole. But all in all, I mean, really impressive play from Ernie. And, you know, it's hard to argue that he wasn't Detroit's best player uh, last night, maybe second to Dylan Larkin, who we'll touch on in a little bit here. But he was everywhere. I think he had six or seven shots on goal, if I remember correctly, by the end of the game. Just absolutely dominant performance from him. He was hunting the hat trick and he very nearly had, I think it was early in the second period. He, he takes a puck up ice, you know, he, he gains the zone and he makes a real power forward goal scorers move to the net and he beats Reimer. I, I think he probably should have gone five hole. And I bet if he looks at the tape, he'll wish that he had, but he still beat him anyway, not going five hole and just barely misses the net by two inches as Reimer's coming across um, he tries to keep it out of Reimer's reach, and it, it just misses the net by just a couple inches. So he he very nearly had the hat trick there. He had a couple more looks at it. Um, I, I think he definitely seemed like he was hunting it late, and I cannot fault him for that. I mean, he he very nearly made the most of it. And so uh, I would say that, that, that you know, I don't want to say it's like a breakout game. This is like a 24, 25-year-old guy who's been with the team for a couple years now, but I would say it was his best game as a Red Wing. 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, best game of his career, uh, in my opinion. I mean, he finished with, you know, 0.83 expected goals on six shots on goal. Uh, you know, played nearly 20 minutes. Yeah, 19 ice time. minutes. <laughs> I mean, just just a monster game for him uh, all around and, and arguably was was the big reason the Wings were able to, you know, get the jump on the Canes and then uh, go from there. And if you think he just put some shots on the goal, no, I mean, the guy finished also with a 77% five-on-five expected goals for percentage, if I remember correctly here. So just, just an outstanding overall game from him. And you know, looking back to when you and I were kind of talking about the team at the beginning of the year and we talked about, well, how are the Red Wings going to win games? The game against Carolina, that second game there, that was the exact recipe of how they're going to do it. You find a way to keep them even at even strength. You know, you do a good job slowing them through the neutral zone. You keep the chances to a low quality. You know, they're fine if you want to take 35 shots. Detroit ended up winning the expected goals for battle. So even though they gave up a lot more shot attempts, They didn't give up high quality shots and then they capitalized on their special teams opportunities. They scored two power play goals. You know, this time they did a better job when they were shorthanded. They did a better job defending Carolina's power play, although Carolina did get a power play goal. Uh, So ultimately, I think that's kind of the recipe for how they're going to win hockey games. and, And that's what ended up working for him last night. I'd add one more thing to that recipe, and that was your stars got to be your stars. Their star was a star last night. Dylan Larkin had a great game, maybe his best of the season. He's credited with two assists. I think you on Twitter were lobbying that he should have had a third, and I think there's something to that on Ernie's first goal. He went for the rebound and didn't get all of it to get it in. I think he got enough of it that he probably should have gotten an assist on there, and that assist should have gone to him instead of uh, Heronic. But um, regardless, he had the highlight of the night on a end-to-end from behind the goal line rush. I think he went through every Canes defender at one point, and then at the very last second, it's a behind-the-back drop pass to Robbie Fabry. Uh, Reimer had no chance of picking that up at that point with how fast Larkin had been coming at him, and then to try to change trajectories like that. Um, I think that might be the best goal the Red Wings have scored in two seasons. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the case. I think, number one, NHL scorekeepers, you completely whiffed. I mean, Larkin, you can see the puck clearly changed directions on that first play, on the first Adam Ernie goal. So someone needs to go back and give him that third assist. Philip Peronik has enough secondary assists. <laughs> he doesn't need any more at this point. Just go ahead, give that assist back to Dylan Larkin. Um, everything will be fine from there. Uh, but yeah, the end-to-end rest was was almost a, yeah, I know people were talking about it being vintage Larkin. I mean, it's not really vintage if you guys five years in the league, but, you know, that was kind of the end-to-end rush. We saw him do a lot as a rookie. And that was uh, a McDavid-like rush. I mean, that's yeah, what McDavid a, does. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. It's a different style of, of rush. It's just that blazing speed, beats you with one move. Uh, gets past it's not like the the Pavel Datsuk rushes where he would literally beat guys two or three times on his way up the ice this was just classic Larkin very McDavid like and then the the nifty pass uh, to put it right on the tape for Fabry just kind of sealed the deal there he is really really cruising we talked about how good of a game he had in that first game uh, against Carolina where he matched up against their top line and with the Ajo line on the ice they only managed three shot attempts at five on five not as good of a performance in that regard this time around uh, against the Ajo line, but in the minutes against the Stahl Svechnikov line, you know, Larkin's line absolutely feasted, putting eight shots, uh, you know, against the Canes with nothing on the board. And then Larkin himself, you know, finished with eight shots, seven on goal, 
huge game overall for him uh, in addition to the playmaking. So really, really uh, fun to watch. And, you know, when you look at his last couple of games here, uh, how he's held his own against Tampa and uh, Carolina, really, really exciting to see um, him starting, starting to find his game after a slow start to the season. I would have bet my whole wallet halfway up that rush that that was ending in a Larkin shot on goal. And I think that's what made it such a spectacular play is that, you know, he, he gets up, he crosses the line and I'm like, all right, what's he going to try to do here? Is he going to try to make the power move back to the net and, and go across his body with a backhand? Or is he going to just try to beat Reimer on the shot? It didn't even occur to me that he was going to try to drop past this. That's what made it such an effective play. And that's what I think differentiates it is it was it was that one extra element at that speed to think to make that play and to know that Fabry would be there that made it that took it from like, a hey, that's really nice speed to that's a high end. I think that's an elite play. Yeah, I mean, four years ago, that's a shot uh, on goal by Lurkin. He takes it from probably about the goal line, really bad angle, goes off the pad and it's a rush the other way. I mean, that was what Dylan Larkin did for most of his rookie and sophomore year. And that was part of his struggle was he was so fast, so good, would beat the guys up the ice, but then couldn't either make a move to the middle or would just kind of settle for the weak shot from a bad angle. And, and it never really amounted to much this time around, you know, uses that speed, beats his defenders, but then knows where the support is finds it and in the end result a, a beautiful goal. So that's really the maturation I think you see in terms of Larkin understanding how to utilize his speed and where his teammates are going to be supporting him. So by the end of the game, after we've seen this, this kind of performance from him, it was clear that we were going to have to just dive right into something that we touched on at the very end of the last episode. Uh, it was very clear that Don Larkin was going to need to be a key to- topic of this show no matter what today. So we figured... We teased it last time that we would have to do a future episode on on Dylan Larkin's place among the NHL's um, center cohort. Let's just do it right now. Um, Maybe a little bit fortuitous timing for me, who I think it tends to be more on the side of placing Larkin a little higher in that echelon. Uh, But we're going to give it a real honest look, not not be prisoners of the moment here, uh, and talk about where Dylan Larkin's place is among the top centers in the NHL. To refresh people or, or let people know who didn't listen to the last episode, I think we got a question about whether Larkin was a 1C on a cup contending team. And where one of the places that we kind of caught a snag is I said, I think he falls somewhere in the late teens to early 20s among NHL centers. I don't know that that in itself answers whether he's a top 1C on a cup team. But one thing we know, especially from some of the research that uh, Dom Lucician has done, is that cup teams tend to have two number one level centers. In other words, two of the top 30 or so centers in the league, and one of them tends to be elite. Now, where you draw that elite line is a little more subjective. Um, My contention is I think Larkin can be the center who plays the most minutes on your contender, but I do think you probably need a a player who's going to score more points, be more offensively dynamic as your number one center. There are a couple exceptions to that. St. Louis recently um, would be one of them. But that's the background for this conversation that we're going to have. And Prashanth, you put out a poll uh, to the fan base today to kind of kick us off and and get us on the ground running for some background of what, I guess, our listenership would say about Larkin's place among the top centers in the game. Yeah, I sort of wanted to gauge what the fan base thought about this question before, you know, you and I spent uh, a little bit talking through uh, at least our ideas and, and, and our kind of perception here. And so... Tweeted out two separate polls, the first poll being, you know, assuming you get to pick one center uh, to play on your top line for next season and next season alone, 
would Dylan Larkin be one of the top 20 centers selected? Uh, got nearly a thousand people to vote in it, and and 60% of people said yes, he would absolutely be a top 20 center in there. So Max, you have the support of the fan base right off the get go. And so then I, I I followed it up with a second question and then asked, can Dylan Larkin be the top center on a Stanley Cup team? Again, got a little more than a thousand votes here, but this time. of people said no. And so I think, you know, to to kind of frame our conversation, we'll talk about what we mean by center, because you can use a lot of different definitions here. It's hard to keep track of. I think for our purposes, you know, you and I kind of settled on, we went through daily face-off, looked at all the line combinations, and everyone who was playing center uh, was considered for this conversation, including guys who are injured like Jonathan Taves, you know, Jack Eichel, guys who are obviously you know, centers, those guys factored in here. But that means, you know, a Leon Dreisaitl was playing wing but has the capacity to play center was not a factor in this conversation. Uh, same thing, Jonathan Marches, so is a guy who can play center, has played center in the past, not a factor in this conversation. So uh, only guys who are currently playing center for their teams uh, right now as listed on daily faceoff. And so, all right, Max, I figured... um one way to really kick this topic off is so starting with the question of, you know, if you get that one center to play on your top line for next season and next season alone, so we don't have to deal with kind of projecting people forward and doing too much in the way of regression for some of the older guys. Um, is Dylan Larkin a top 20 center in your mind? As I went through this, he was, I, I tried to look at it a couple different ways. I went through this list. I think he fell somewhere right around 20, which is not a satisfying thing. It was either 19 or 20 or 21, depending on how I kind of looked at it, which was from some different perspectives. So let me just run down the list here, and I'll tell you how I how I uh, kind of thought about it. And you tell me at, at the end where you take issue. Or, you, or how about this? Stop me when you take issue, and, and that'll be a good way to, to break right, this down. So give me, give me your no doubters at the start here. I'm going to no, track no what you got. No doubt better than Larkin? No, no doubt better than Larkin. And then once we get to the first gray one, I think I'll pause you there. Okay. So I'm going to uh, go down the list. Patrice Bergeron, Jack Eichel, Sebastian Ajo, I think would be a no doubt, but it, I don't think it's a blowout. Um, Jonathan Taves, you could make an age argument. I don't, I don't know if I want to put that in the no doubt right yet. Nathan McKinnon, uh, Connor McDavid, Alexander Barkov, Andre Kopitar, Matt Barzal, who I didn't think of as a center when we last did this. I said Larkin would be the 1C on the Islanders, and I, I thought Barzell was playing wing. Um, Couturier, Crosby, O'Reilly, Point, Matthews, Pedersen, Backstrom. Shifley might be a gray area. I think I'd take Shifley, but I don't know for sure. Those are my right. kind of no-doubters. All right, so let's see here. I might have missed one in there. Uh, after who you, Who'd you say after McDavid? Um, Barkov. Barkov. All right. There we go. So that's not a bad no doubt list. So that's what you've got 15 guys, 12 guys there. How many? One, two. I didn't count them. Yeah, you got 15 exactly. So you've got 15, no doubt you're taking ahead of Dylan Larkin here. And so just to kind of frame the conversation a little bit more. So why does top 20 really matter? Um, I'm fixating on top 20 because since 07, 08, only one team has actually won the cup without having a top 20 center uh, in GSVA, which is Dom Lecision's, uh, you know, war equivalent model. 
Only one team has actually won the cup uh, without having at least one top 20 center. That was the 1718 Capitals. Uh, in that year, actually, Nicholas Backstrom, Backstrom was, was top 20. He was 22nd. Kuznetsov was 26th okay. uh, by GSVA that year. So, again, you didn't have top 20, but you had two of the next six uh, to be able to do it. Nine of the 14 teams that have won the cup since 07 08 have had a top five center, and six of the 14 had two of the top 20 centers. Uh, so the focus on top 20 is important because it really frames our, our second question. So thus far, you've given me 15 guys you're considering, no doubt. So I'm going to hit you with some names here. And I want to hear uh, if you're going to, I'm going to go kind of a rapid fire here. You got to give me a yes, no, in terms okay. of if you're going to take him ahead of Larkin. Yep. We'll start with some easy ones here. Evgeny Malkin. Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't look at the second second call. Yes, Malkin. <laughs> All right, Evgeny Malkin. All right, uh, next one, John Tavares. Yeah. Okay, so there's we're at 17 here. So now so there were other 17, no doubt. I, I, I should have thought of both of those guys. It's all good. I'll give you a couple of uh, ones to consider here now. Thomas Hurdle. I would take Larkin. Okay. All right. A uh, couple of other ones here. Bo Horvat. I told you last episode I would take Larkin. All right. Braden Chen. I think that's a good conversation. I would take Larkin. Um, you know, we're talking about this season and next. I, I would take Larkin. All right. Pierre-Luc Dubois. I would call this a coin flip. I would take Larkin, but it might be because I just know his game closer. This is one where you got to acknowledge, you know, you're maybe people are more, you know, one reason why I think we don't see a lot of trades uh, hockey for hockey is because I think it's always easier to be comfortable with somebody that you know better. This would be one where I would lean Larkin while acknowledging that might be the reason. All right. Claude Giroux. Ooh, I think I'd take Giroux. But he's getting Mika, older. So if we're talking about is. this season and next, that's a tough conversation. He is. He is. He is only three years removed from a 5.4 GSVA season, which for those of you who uh, are not familiar, the average first-line center on a cup championship team usually posts a 3.8. Drew, three years ago, 5.4. When I was a this, senior in high school, he might have been my favorite player in the NHL. That was uh, 2012-13 so in, in, in 2013-14, I guess, really. I mean, those were that's his, his peak prime, I guess, at 25, 26 is. years old. He's one of my all-time favorites. He's a great hockey player, so he's a tough one to consider here. Here's another tough one to consider. Mika Zibanejad. I thought about this one uh, in the in the run-up, and I settled on Larkin, but last year Mika Zibanejad was unbelievable, and he hasn't been quite that level. Last, last year you you would be hard-pressed to, to not take Zibanejad. Um, it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. I, I, I would put that in the same kind of coin flip tier. All right, Joe Pavelski. I would take Larkin, but again, Pavelski in his prime is a different conversation. All right. I'm going to give you one more here uh, to, to think through then. Ryan Nugent Hopkins. And that's, it's, a, it's a great question. I would take Larkin, but it, part of it is because it's hard to isolate you know, anybody on the Oilers from Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Like I'm trying to picture Nugent Hopkins in Larkin's spot, and I think it goes worse for him, and it goes worse for the Red Wings. Um, but... He's a great player. All right. So I think we added, uh, you know, three three or four guys there. Yeah, uh, so it kept going between 19 and 21 for me. All right. All right. So Max, he's exactly top 20 for you then. All right. Yeah. Right there. 20th overall. So it's an interesting conversation to have. And, and I did a lot of legwork on this today, just thinking through it. I 
we'll tweet out some graphs that will go along with this, kind of showing Larkin's career progression with number one centers on cup teams, uh, and then how he looks kind of stacked up to who I kind of identify as the top 45 centers or so and, and kind of how he falls in there. I think there's a really solid argument you can make that right now he's maybe in that 20 to 25 range. There's a handful of guys where, you know, you can make his case and say, all right, maybe I'd slightly lean this guy versus Larkin or in another scenario, you maybe slightly lean Larkin over, uh, you know, that particular player. But I think you can make a reasonable argument that he's somewhere, at least in my opinion, between 20 and 30 you know, high side, you're a little more bullish on him. You're a little more bullish on his future prospects. He's 25 or 24, right? Uh, so he's still got, you know, plenty to go in terms of development. Um, you can maybe be a little bit more bearish and say he hasn't necessarily given you a season yet that's truly graded out from beyond just a point perspective as a elite season. And so yeah. what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I just mentioned that the cup contenders or the cup champions usually have uh, their 1C being at 3.8 GSVA with a standard deviation of about 0.7, which means most cup centers are falling between 3.1 and 4.5. Larkin's peak thus far, again, still very young, is 2.7. So he hasn't really sniffed that peak yet. This year he's on track by Dom's model to finish at 1.94. Uh, so we'll be curious to see kind of how he develops. And again, the whole reason that we're fixating on that statistic beyond just points and overall play is it does incorporate offense. It incorporates defense and all the cup t- contending teams seem to have this piece uh, of the puzzle there. Yeah. One thing it's important to remember as we're talking about, there's a couple guys that I can already guess. Some of you are like, you didn't mention Jack Hughes. You didn't mention Kirby doc. You know, you're telling me you wouldn't trade Larkin for Jack Hughes or whatever, or, or Kirby doc, right? We're talking about, in the present this way, because yes, we don't know quite what Jack Hughes and Kirby Doc can become, although certainly we have a lot of reason to suspect they're going to be very, very good and possibly even elite. But I think it ultimately doesn't obscure the picture too much because by the time a guy like Hughes, a guy like Doc does enter the fold, I, I suspect a guy like Tavares has exited this tier. A guy like uh, maybe even Bergeron is getting up there, is exiting this tier. A guy like Pavelski, who I didn't put above Larkin, but I think it's close, is exiting this tier. Um, and and you, you never know what happens with some of these guys as they approach 30 years old. So um, that's why I think it's a fair methodology is because even as your Hughes, your Doc, maybe you're quitting Byfield, um, age in, maybe Tim Stutzel switches to center and that changes things, you're going to have also guys exiting at, a reasonably predictable similar rate, I think. Although sometimes elite players can can hold on to that top level longer than other guys can. Um, that's why I feel like this methodology is an accurate picture that captures both the now and the future for a guy who's 24. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just taking a present day assessment because, you know, the conversation completely changed when we're talking, when now we're talking about, you know, like you said, Hughes, Doc, we didn't talk about Nick Suzuki. We didn't talk about Joel Erickson Eck you know, guys who are coming along and then, you know, shoot the guys, uh, we didn't talk about Quentin Byfield. I mean, that's a guy that you would probably make that deal for. So a lot of moving pictures. That's why kind of right now you're picking a player for next season. Where does he stack up? And if you're saying that you're already believing he's inside the top 20, uh, and, and he's 24, 25, and you're thinking that he's going to continue to get better, then you have to feel kind of good about your prospects. Um, so, you know, that kind of settles in terms of where Larkin is, at least in our opinion, I think Max, you're kind of on the higher side of the 20 to 30 range. I might be a little bit more towards, I think when I did my list, I had him at 27. So 
again, still inside that top 30 range, but, uh, you know, can get closer and closer, I think, over the years to come. But the next question, I think, is the fun one is, you know, can Dylan Larkin be the 1C, the guy playing the most minutes at center on a cup team? Um, And again, uh, the reason this is important here, the reason why I'm going to ask and frame this is, I'm actually going to pick apart some of the poll results after you give your answer here, but it's a it's a fun question to think about in terms of roster construction moving forward. What do you actually need to to get to the next level? Well, my answer is yes, that he can play the most minutes, but I, I want to give with the caveat that I think you'd still want to have a player who rates above him on that list. Like if you go through that list that we just went through of guys who are no doubt better, I'm going to bet a decent portion of them play less than Larkin. I'm going to bet a decent portion of them are playing less than his 21 minutes per night. And so I don't think sheer minutes per game necessarily reflects who the best player is, who the most dynamic this or that is. Like I think if if the Red Wings are going to add another center and you said you have him around 27, so that would put him in that range to be in that, uh, you know, Backstrom Kuznetsov dynamic from a couple years ago, I would say I, I betting O'Reilly was um, rated pretty highly by GSVA when the Blues did it, but I can I think there's a similar dynamic there of two guys who maybe I don't know that he, anyone would say either of those two is in the top ten, but I think most people would say both are in the top thirty to thirty five. So he can be one of those two pieces I feel very good about, and I think he can be the one that shoulders the load because of what he can do defensively, what he can do checking the other team's best player sometimes by having the puck and not having to defend. Um, but I think you'd still probably want, you know, from, from a guy like Larkin, who I, I'm guessing he, he has scored 70 points before. I'm guessing he's going to settle in as a guy who scores about 60 to 65 points per season most years um, for the next five or six years. And then makes up for, you know, that 10 point gap by being 10 points better defensively than he was a couple seasons ago. So that's how I kind of view this. And I think if he does that playing 20 to 21 minutes a night against really tough competition, you're going to be fine with that as the guy you're playing the most, but you might also want to have a guy who's scoring 70 to 80 points um, as your other center who's maybe playing 1930 per night, for example. And so that's where parsing who's the 1C gets tricky, right? Because I think Larkin, by any measure, is getting the most minutes. That's how you would normally order your depth chart. But it, you know, it might be a guy who falls higher on the GSVA scale, certainly on the point scale, that kind of thing. So I do have a little trouble kind of contextualizing who to call the 1C in that scenario. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's maybe a little bit more semantics and, and me being, you know, unclear, but maybe the better way to frame it is, is can you win if he is the best center by GSVA on your team? That's a little tougher. Um, I think it could happen, but I would put the odds of it happening as lower than yeah, I, I mean, this is maybe that's a stupid point. You're always better off having a better player, <laughs> but like, uh, I would be less probable than more that you can win a cup with you know the number twenty or so center in the league. Um, like you said, there's precedent for it, but I wouldn't call that a precedent. I was aiming to mimic. You mean sense. you don't want to mimic having the greatest goal scorer of all time on your team that's <laughs> not a center? To- <laughs> uh, I, I want to mimic it, but uh, I don't want to. I don't want to bank on it happening. How about that? <laughs> that's fair. And that's fair. And that's why this is so important to think through. Because, you know, imagine you're Steve Eisman, right? And you're sitting in his shoes and you're going, what do I need to take this team to the next level? And if you don't consistently ask yourself these questions about where is Daryl Larkin right now? What do I think he's going to be? Can he be that best player? 
you're doing yourself a disservice by not thinking through your roster. And so, you know, I took the liberty of kind of researching out where all of these Stanley Cup champions were. Uh, I'll run through them real quick here. You know, 07, 08, Datsuk's your 1C, first among centers. 08, 09, uh, you have the Penguins. Malkin's first among centers. Crosby's fourth among centers. Jesus. You know, 2010, <laughs> Taze is fifth. Patrick Sharp, seventh. 2010, 2011, and maybe the model where you can maybe find a Red Wings way to build if you're going to go with Larkin as your first. David Krejci is 17th. Patrice Bergeron is 2.36. He's 19th. And that's a young Patrice Bergeron. That is a young Patrice Bergeron. And so if you're thinking about the Red Wings moving forward, Larkin may be being more that veteran. You lay in one of these top centers, whether it's a William Ecklander in, in the next 2022 or 2023 draft, you get one of those guys and they're able to come chip in. Maybe that's the model. Of course, that 2010-2011 Bruins team had a robust defense yep. and Tim Thomas playing like Dominic Hasek in net. Yep. So again, a different way to build a team, but a way to think about. 11-12, the Kings, Andre Kopitar, he's ninth. 2012-2013, Taves is second. 13-14, Kopitar's fifth. 14-15, Taves is eighth. 15-16, Crosby's third. 16-17, Crosby's second. Malkin's sixth. 17-18, I talked about with Backstrom and Kuznetsov being 22 and 26. Ryan O'Reilly in 18-19, we talk about him maybe being a comp for Larkin. He was fourth wow. in GSVA that year, and Braden Shen was top 20. And then 2019-2020, Braden points 3.08. He's fourth among centers, and Anthony Sorelli is also top 20. So there is a precedent and a way to build. Sorelli I think made if you're it to top 20. Yeah. That's yeah. a fascinating one for me because I look at Sorelli and, and I see a guy who, you know, he certainly scores, but he doesn't score as much as Larkin, but his defense is that good that, it, that it's getting him there. Yeah. And, and he's a fascinating player. He wasn't in our conversation this time because right now he's not playing center for the, for the lightning, neither Steven Stamkos, which is why we didn't talk about either of those guys. But, you know, the, the, the point is that most of these teams were, you know, lucky or fortunate to have a top five center and that the teams that didn't had significant depth and had other pieces to their team that allowed them to be successful. And so if you're Steve Eiserman, you're trying to mimic these Stanley Cup contenders, you're looking for what you need. It, it really is true. Depth down the middle and having that elite talent at center does appear to be a key denominator, a key kind of you know factor for all of these Stanley Cup teams. And the one team that really, really the two teams that didn't fit it, the 10-11 Bruins, uh, were buoyed by ridiculous goaltending and defense. And then the set right and defense and the 1718 Capitals have Alex Ovechkin, a one of a kind goal scorer, in addition to being a really high octane, you know, offense. So it it basically tells you, I think, at this point, if you looked at the answers to those polls and you answered that Dylan Larkin was a top 20 center, well then yes, you should have answered that you can win a Stanley Cup with him, you know, as you being your top player by GSVA. I think that's reasonable. Um, he's not there right now, but if you think he is that and he's going to get you that, then you should be able to win a Stanley Cup with him. But if you answered no, and more realistically, you're trying to follow the pathway of 12 of the other 14 Cup contenders from the last uh, since 0708, then I think you're thinking, I still need that guy who is better than Dylan Larkin to really go to the next level. And that should help you kind of frame your expectations for where this team is going to be in the next three to five years, because Guys like that don't grow on trees. They grow in the draft. And, and they grow to at the top the, of the draft. Right. And they exactly. And they grow at the top of the draft. So, you know, we're already seeing this year, maybe not shaping up to be the strongest. Maybe William Eklund can be a guy who can be 
a Larkin equivalent. You know, maybe Matty Beneers is a Larkin equivalent. I, don't I think, think he's Ken a Sorelli John- equivalent is what yeah. he could be. Yeah. And so again, you know, that's a different model and way to build. But ultimately, I think if you're looking to go the way most of these cup contenders have gone, you need a guy better than Larkin unless you're willing to go in a different route and kind of roll the dice a little bit and getting that ridiculous goaltending or getting, you know, a lot of talent outside of that center depth. It's a it's a great layout by you just just there because what it does is it shows is it possible that if Larkin is is a 20 is is the number is a top 20 center that you can win a cup with with him as your top center? It's been done. But if we're saying that he that we think he's 19, 20 or 21, does not give you a lot of margin for error and it tells you that you have to be exceptional in some other era area whether that's having a a not just generational but like all-time goal scorer on, on your top of your lineup or a great um you know blue line depth or or great goaltending which is very hard to predict as longtime listeners of the show will um automatically fill in the blank to hearing your voice say um so i i think it's very relevant and i think the the example that you gave of boston with Krejci and bergeron and then that eventually flip-flopping i'm guessing the last time boston was um in the stanley cup finals where was uh where were bergeron and Krejci? it was probably yeah, bergeron was bergeron's the top one yep. yeah bergeron's yep. one and Krejci's the two right and, and but i'm saying like by overall gsv i'm guessing bergeron's by then in the top five and Krejci's oh, yeah, yeah, probably yeah. like 19 to 25 or something right yep so, that's exactly it so that's what you're looking to do here like if you're if you're steve eiserman now you can't guarantee yourself shane wright or something or um any of the other top you know is brad lambert considered a center or a wing at the next level uh, I think he's played mostly wing in Liga. I don't okay. think he's played a lot of center, but I could be wrong on that. One guy at the NTDP, um, you know, there, there's some really interesting names there. I'm not sure where these guys will fall. I, I liked Logan Cooley when I went and watched the NTDP recently. Rucker McGrady, I think, is more of a wing. These are interesting names for that class. Is Savoie considered a center or a wing? Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. I haven't actually watched a lot of him yet. Okay. I mean, my, the reason I'm asking, because it seems like a no-brainer point to say if you can will yourself to the number one overall pick in 2022 and get Shane Wright, you're in this great position. But the broader point I want to make is if you do draft a high-end center, maybe it's Matt Beniers, maybe it is William Eklund in this draft. Um, maybe it's Kent Johnson if you believe he's a center. I mean, I, Johnson has mostly played on the wing with Beniers this year, but this is a highly, highly skilled player. And I think if you're talking about wanting another center who who can kind of bring that more offensive dynamism to the table. If you believe Kent Johnson as a center, then maybe he is a guy that you look at there. So my point being, if if, if you view Larkin as your Krejci, um, then he holds the torch as your window opens. And then as he fades uh, into the background, into that two spot, I don't think he's going to fall off a cliff. But, you know, if he's your guy when he's 27 – um, and then the, the torch passes to a Shane Wright or a Matt Beniers or whoever this center that you draft in the next couple of years is, then he becomes your Krejci, and, and then you're fine with him as your number two center for the next five years after that till he's 33, 34, whatever. Um, I think that's a sustainable model for franchise success, but it does demand that you, know, you have to get that other center in there because otherwise you're asking Larkin to – to not only maintain his game, but probably up his game. And, you know, we've seen at 25, that can happen in some areas, but it's hard to get across the board. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, if you're looking for an example of that, where you're kind of banking that you think Larkin's got another gear and you just need to bring a guy in that's similar, if not a little behind him. I mean, look no further than the 1819 St. Louis Blues. You know, Ryan O'Reilly, for the most part of his career, sits around a 2.5 to 2.7 GSVA, But in 2018, 2019, he's north of four. It's his only season in that realm. 
every other season is kind of back around that 2.5 to 2.7. And so for this one year in St. Louis, he took his game to another level. And then having Braden Shen behind him allowed St. Louis to be just a dominant team. And so there, there's a route to doing that as well. And so I think the moral of my story here is you would certainly like to continue swinging for that elite level center. You you want to make sure that that's what you're chasing from a positional uh, perspective. You know, I talk a lot about not drafting by positions, but if you've got two guys you're considering to be roughly equivalent, I think we've said this on the show in the past, you know, lean center here, lean forward in particular, uh, but particularly go after that center to see if you can swing for a guy that is at least as good as Larkin, if not better, because that's going to be your key to kind of digging out of where you're at right now. I mean, we see it on the Red Wings right now. There's a there's a chasm between Larkin and Nemesnikov. You know, it, it, it kind of hurts to say it, but there is a huge gap between the first and second line center right now. And, and Larkin's not at the level where he can drag enough up or he can drag them up, up enough. And so I think that's what you, you want to be looking for here to kind of follow a more traditional model in terms of team building. You know, that's not to say go out and just continue to draft centers and hope that each one is Sidney Crosby. It doesn't work that way, but kind of be a little bit more realistic about your expectations for the, this team and how quickly are they going to climb out? Well, they're going to climb out once they start adding some more, you know, elite level center depth or at least another center on, on Larkin's level. A little bit of a flip side to that potentially is if you, you know, you look at Steve Eiserman's Tampa team that you just referenced in, with Point and Sorelli, you know, both of those guys are drafted in the third round. It's a little bit of an exception. I think that's a dangerous game to play to try and get a guy that you expect to play at the top of your lineup in that range. But one thing that if 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 you don't identify someone who at the top of the draft, you're confident in saying you think you can he can be a top 20 center in this league someday, you can try to orient your team in a way by having an unbelievable blue line. If you love Owen Power this year, or you love Luke Hughes this year, or you love, you know, Simon Edvitz and Brant Clark, these are some of the top defensemen in this draft class. You take that guy at the top of the draft and you say, okay, I'm going to roll out, you know, Power, Clark, Hughes, Edvinson, whoever, Cider, you know, Hironic, Johansson, maybe you love William Wallander, you know, or, or what he can become as a prospect, um, Donovan Sabrango down the lineup, Emil Vero down the lineup, and you say, I, I would really love my defense core that way, and I think this this sets me up really well for that, right? You could you can look at it that way too and say, I'll take my chances to try and find that center that no one found, that Sebastian Ajo in the second round, that Patrice Bergeron in the second round, that Braden Point in the third, whatever. And then next year, if if it if if that still isn't looking like it's panning out, because usually you know pretty early with a with a gem you found that you found a gem, then you go right back to the well and you get the center. I mean, I think that's that's a reasonable option here. Um but, you know, I think there are centers worth taking a swing on in this draft. I think there's defensemen worth taking a swing on in this draft. That's where my efforts would be focused on the next two drafts is center or D, center or D, unless you're blown away by somebody on the wing. If you're blown away by Brad Lambert and you think he can be Patrick Kane or whatever, do it. That's worth it. But if you just think you're drafting a first-line winger, try to draft the first-line center, the first pair D, would be my advice instead. Yeah. And, and really, it kind of comes down to the summation of what we've said a lot, which is draft the best player available or draft who you think is the best player available. But when you're coming to splitting hairs, you know, maybe lean towards center, lean towards forward, uh, as those players seem to be a little bit more predictable in, in assessment, I should say. So, 
know, all in all, I think this is just a, it's an interesting exercise is not to pick apart Dylan Larkin, who is an outstanding player in his own right. Uh, but it's an interesting exercise in being a front office, being a general manager and thinking about, you know, how do I take this team to the next level? Yeah, it is. And it's it's one of the things that you probably constantly have to be assessing. You can't Steve Eisenman can't uh uh you know pull pull open his notes from March 17, 2021 when he's at the draft table. He's got to see what cuz he's going to be constantly getting new information about Dylan Larkin about, you know, the centers they have in their in their pipeline, Theodore Niederbach, you know, it's it's possible that um they already think there's someone in their system. I don't think this is likely who who can rise to it to a high level. But that information is going to keep evolving over time, you know. So every every one of these is kind of a snapshot of a moment in time. This moment in time is one that uh obviously Larkin's coming off a really good game and we're trying to have to control for that uh, as we make this assessment. If if we had this conversation three weeks ago, Maybe there's a couple of those coin flips that, that go in another direction. Maybe you lean Joe Pavelski or something like that. So um, all these are snapshots, and I, I wouldn't uh, kind of invoke this exact line of, uh, of thinking necessarily uh, a year from now or even on draft day as, as you're making your own internal calculations. But it's the kind of thinking a front office has to do semi-regularly as it makes its plans. Yep. And that's what you always have to be doing, regardless whether you're a general manager or a fan, I think, is just constantly updating with new information and and not letting yourself get complacent. Yeah. All right. Uh, You put out a mailbag call. Anything jump out uh, at you in there? Um, Nothing super exciting that I can spot here i don't know if there's any of them that looked good to you i thought there were a couple that uh that i liked in the early going here it's it, uh adam flett with kind of a would you rather i, I kind of liked would you rather have the sixth pick in this draft and the third next or the first pick in this draft and the fifth next yeah i mean if you just take the average of the values you should take the first and the fifth because you know on average that's the quality of player you're going to get but with kind of our projection for what the top of the 2022 draft is going to look like. And, you know, I might be inclined to, to lean towards having a higher pick in the 2022 draft, uh, especially if there's a three, you know, a three-way kind of tie at the top with, you know, Lambert, Wright and Savoie. Like, you know, if you're coming away guaranteed to get one of those three, I think you have to do it. I think that's where I'm at too. I think it would be a no-brainer if you can guarantee yourself the first pick in 2022 because I, I think it's still possible Shane Wright even creates some separation there with the pedigree that he has. Um, but I think your line of thinking is is correct. And especially because as, as I look at this draft class, um, you always would rather have the choice of your guy, but I'm not sure there's going to be a ton of separation in what I think of the players who end up drafted first and sixth this year. Yeah, yep, totally agree. All right, here's a good one from um, Jay, who does some good work uh, pulling video sometimes on Red Wing stuff. So shout out to you. He's at HWCJ on Twitter. He says, would you rather have Lucas Raymond develop into Mitch Marner or Mark Stone? Uh, This is a super easy one for me, and it's Mark Stone. Mark Stone is just an absurdly talented hockey player who does not get enough press for how good he is defensively and offensively. So... Uh, yeah, Mitch Marner's got the flash. Mark Stone's a better hockey player. Marner's on the points. Uh, Mark Stone was on my Selkie ballot this year. Mitch Marner might be on my Selkie ballot this year. He's off to a really good start defensively. He's younger. I mean, there's one advantage that Stone is getting in this conversation is we've seen this level of defense over a period of time. Now, 
the thing that we have to take into account here, though, is like, you know, Mitch Marner is much more similar to Lucas Raymond in terms of their profile and their 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 tools and their height and all that stuff. Like, you know, you, Lucas Raymond's not going to grow to be six three. He's not, but I think while the hands, the flair, the offensive flashes all look like Marner. The other thing that gets talked about with Raymond is he's a puck hound, right? He's an aggressive forechecker, excellent back checker. Those tend to be characteristics of a Mark Stone. So that's why I think this is a fun question because, you know, they, they have kind of similarities to both players. You know, Raymond does, but I would much rather have Mark Stone than Mitch Marner. If you're talking pure impact, uh, I do think you're, you're probably taking the Mark Stone impact, but uh, I think it's a conversation, and, and I think the Marner track is more likely. I don't know that he's going to score the same number of points, though, as as Marner does. Um, that's that's really rare air for Lucas yeah, Raymond to, to, yeah, to try that to that would achieve. be tough. Yeah, all right. Um, Coach says, uh, say everyone is available for selection for the 2021-22 season. Who would be in your top six? So basically no one gets traded between now and then. Everyone in the Red Wings system, like, you know, you don't have to worry about whether the Red Wings are going to put Lucas Raymond on the roster practically. You could put him in your top six if you felt like he would be deserving and the best option for it. Who's your top six in that case? Uh, I mean, the top line is what it is. It's going to be Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha. And then I think you have to have Lucas Raymond – um, on the lineup, Philip Zadina on the other side, and then insert center here for who's going to you know center them. Whether it's Vladislav Nemesnikov, uh, I don't think that would be the, the the worst option to go that route. But I don't know that I would have anybody better to put there. I think I, if I were in charge, I would let Lucas Raymond marinate a little bit in the AHL first. But I would put Joe Valeno in that spot on the wing, um, and I would have it. Valeno, Nemesnikov, Zadina. It's a little bit of a young line there, but I think Nemesnikov's really proven um, that he can shoulder a big defensive load. Zadina continues to show that he can make a positive impact in that facet of the game. Um, and I think Valeno adds kind of that extra offensive component while still being um, a really fast player. He seems to be evolving his two-way game, although, you know, it's it's kind of tough to get a read on how well it's going. I, I think that's part of the reason he's not playing center in Sweden is the defensive demands of that position there. But you move him to the wing, um, I, I think that could be a really fun line. And, you know, I, I just think not just because I think it's what the Red Wings will do, but I think it's the right call to, to, to give Lucas Raymond a little more time to adjust. Um, even even if they want to leave him in Sweden for the year, I don't think that's the end of the world. But I, I think I'd bring him over to North America, give him a shot in training camp. Um yeah, if he blows you away, that's great. But I, I would probably plan on having him in Grand Rapids. Max, you're crushing hearts everywhere. I know. I hate to do it, but I, but you know, especially when you see the way it's gone for Cider and what he has gotten out of being able to really dominate like this. You know, two years off from the draft, especially considering you know, I don't know that Raymond had a dominant year this year already. I think there's real benefit to that and letting him kind of take over and, and see what that can feel like against men and to know how to do that against men. Um, you know. I, I, I think you can maybe argue that Zadina could have benefited from another month or so in the AHL had Mantha not gotten hurt and they needed to call him up. Although he's he's going he's going pretty strong now. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a thought here. Yeah. Every year dominating a lesser league is a year wasted that could have been in the NHL. I, I hear that and I I think that's a fair point, but I just don't know that it's you know I don't it, maybe that is true at like twenty two 23 kind of thing but like at 19 i'm not sure that you're really ready to get what you need out of the nhl if you're still trying to 
get your bearings to the degree that I think you would be, you know, first time on the small ice, first time, uh, away from like your home country and, and all this stuff, you know, and, you know, I don't know, it, it, maybe it's a reach. Um, I think it's, I think, you know, adjusting to the North American game in the AHL, even if it's only for half a season, uh, and then, and, and you, you blow them away and you blow them away. That's fine. But, you know, Tim Stutzla is seeming like the exception here among young players entering the NHL. I mean, it's taken Jack Hughes, Capo, 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 um, Alexi Lafreniere. And those are true rookies in most of these cases. Some time. Kirby Doc is an exception. Tim Stutzla is an exception. So I don't know. I'm, I'm open to being wrong. I mean, if Lucas Raymond looks great in camp, don't hesitate. But I'm just saying I wouldn't, I wouldn't push it push the issue there yeah i do think it is the the number one kind of issue with gms kind of pushing players to the next level is they want they often talk about wanting to see him dominate yeah at, at a level before advancing him but a year dominating at that level is a year where you're not necessarily learning as much as you probably should if you're already dominating them there you're probably not rounding out your game or being tested in ways that that challenge you to develop your game and it's a year wasted being at a higher level, whether that's the NHL or the next step up, in my opinion, that's at least my opinion in terms of how players should progress. Like, uh, you shouldn't need to see them dominate before you know if they're ready to move on. I don't need them to win league MVP or score 30 goals or whatever. I just want to see them be able to play their game at will and not have to be kind of adapting, I guess, is what what my threshold would be. I don't need them to, to spend the full season or whatever. Um, but I want to see them be able to impose what they want to do on the game and not have to be kind of constantly adapting to the new new changes before I move them up one level. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that that's fair, and that's what... That's what we see a lot. And for me, it's my, my opinion is entirely speculative. Like I can't go out and show you that my opinion is right. Like even if I point to guys like Quinn Hughes and, and, you know, Kale McCarver jumped took after. Two. Quinn took right. two years at Michigan. Right. But, right. but it's not like he went up a huge level there. The NCAA isn't, isn't that big of a jump and they didn't like make him go through the AHL or anything like yeah. that. But for every one of those that I point out, like, you know, that's just the player being as good as they are. And so it's it's hard to say what would have happened if they did things differently. But it's just that that's kind of my my thought is if you wait for those guys to dominate, you're wasting those years when you should be getting those years, you know, at the NHL level, you're paying for them. That's your chance to really capitalize. I think it shows up most with goalies. Yeah. And I, I'm very open to that point because goalies, they people seem to give them till they're 22, 23 to even debut. I mean, Keith Petrozelli is about to graduate college this year and he's not even a pro yet. Like, you know, they're going to hasn't even signed the contract. He hasn't signed the contract. That's right. He's the subject of, uh, of, of our next question um, from Jay Thomas Dutcher. How do you see uh, the Red Wings goaltending future playing out? Is a long term goal for Petrozelli to be the main guy? I mean, as of now, it appears that way. But I think two years ago, we would have said Philip Larson would have been the main guy uh, with what he was doing at Denver. And then you saw kind of where that went from there. I'll be most interested to see where Petrozelli goes next. Um, I suspect it'll be to Grand Rapids. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, because just given that there's not really much in Grand, Grand Rapids, no dis to, disrespect to, to Pickard or, or Caden Fulcher, but I think Petrozelli is kind of the guy that will want to get in there. But can he handle it? I think that'll be the huge challenge because Philip Larson couldn't. Right. And the thing is, like, is Keith Petrozelli the future TM? I think that's still really ambitious as an ask. Like, I think you're hoping that he's an NHLer. Um, it's it's not a no doubt situation here. And if it was, I don't know that the Red Wings would have taken the chance that you know he can become a free agent if he wants in five months. 
if someone is the future, you're not taking that chance. You're pulling them out after their sophomore or junior year. I mean, Florida and what they do with Spencer Knight is going to be very telling here because, you know, all quietly, all of a sudden, Spencer Knight's only two years from being able to become a free agent if he wanted to go back to college two more times. Um, and, and Florida's goalie pipeline is, you know, I, I don't think it's too crowded to accommodate Spencer Knight and the kind of prospect that he is. Um, but it's not the easiest road when you consider you got one $10 million goaltender on the books. And oh, by the way, his backup is way better than him Chris Treger. Yeah, I mean, Florida is going to be a, a fun experiment because I just you have to wonder if they do something else with Spencer Knight. Like, because uh, I mean, they, they really handcuff themselves with the Bobrovsky deal. But yeah, I mean, it, you don't know. We don't we don't know. I think he's he's certainly in the future as of now because there's nobody better in the system. But um uh, you know, who's to say, why does the future really have to be in the system at all? You know, we've talked about how you can consistently rotate and pick up these free agent goalies. Um, sometimes they take a little bit longer. You know, Alex Nadelkovich, who, you know, Wings fans have become very familiar with uh, after, you know, struggling to score on him the other night. Uh, he's marinated for a while, had a high pedigree coming out, uh, you know, was a was a heck of a goaltender, a former teammate of Dylan Larkin, uh, was a world junior uh, goaltender for uh, the u.s but took him a few years and now all of a sudden he looks great so you know the canes have been kind of biding time until he gets there and maybe the wings do something similar with with bernier and or grace and or you know insert goalie here until petrozelli or somebody else demonstrates the capacity to to play at the next level would you consider trading for someone like a Dreger or an elvis merzlikens right now when they're in their mid-20s i don't know, I want to say Dreger is like established He's played 27 NHL games, but his career save percentage is 927. He's 26 years old. Would you make a trade for a guy like that if Florida decided, hey, they want to turn Spencer Knight pro or something like that? No, because there's no guarantee that the goalie continues to play that way and you're giving up assets for him. You know, I'd much rather pick a goalie out of free agency than actually trade assets for a goaltender, um, particularly one that doesn't have a pedigree of doing this for multiple seasons on end. I think that would be a kind of a high risk deal uh, with potentially little reward. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I think that's a fair point. And we've talked before about not wanting to, um, you know, the the disadvantages of really spending assets that you don't need to spend to acquire goaltending when when many teams are able to to find solid, if not elite goaltending um, in other manners. I mean, you know, I don't I don't know that you would necessarily be in favor of spending kind of what Calgary did to get Jacob Markstrom in free agency. Um, but I like that addition. I think maybe more likely to what to what kind of your preferred approach would be is exactly what the Rebings have gotten out of Jonathan Bernier. You signed him on a three-year deal, $3 million a season. I would say he's given you pretty clear starter performance for at least the, the last you know year plus. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And, and to kind of preface the restricted or the unrestricted free agent piece of things, like you certainly have to be, you know, careful. You shouldn't just go out and throw money at, you know, whomever. I mean, you don't want to go make a Braden Holtby kind of deal like the, the Vancouver Canucks have done, which, you know, they're sort of regretting at this point. You know, Jacob Markstrom, as good as he is, that's an expensive deal. And and if he doesn't live up to that, then, then you're kind of in a a little bit of a bind moving forward. You want to make the kinds of deals that the wings did with, you know, even though grace hasn't looked great here, he's not costing you a ton of money to do it. Um, you know, and then Jonathan Bernier has been just simply outstanding, uh, for the wings. And so he's a guy where it's like, that's the kind of move you want to continue making. Yep. 
All right, I think that's going to do it for us for today. Uh, Red Wings will host the Dallas Stars for a couple of games this coming weekend. I'm sure all of you will be tuned into that, and we will be back at you early next week to break it all down. But also, March Madness is here, and the Athletics College Basketball Crew brings you The Ding You, presented by BetMGM. We'll cover all the action, both on the court and at the sportsbook, grab an insight from the Athletics College basketball writers, and picking the brain of BetMGM's top bookmakers. Join us for our first round discussion show Thursday at 1 p.m. on the Daily Ding feed and streaming on the Athletics YouTube channel. Take care, everybody.